Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Airway First, a podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. My guest today is Dr. Tasha Terzo. Dr. Terzo graduated from Western University in 1994, where she received a postgraduate osteopathic manual medicine anatomy fellowship. She completed her internship at UCSF Family Medicine Residency at the Santa Rosa Community Hospital. Since 1995, she has been practicing osteopathy, homeopathy, functional medicine, prolotherapy, and PRP, specializing in cranial functional dysfunctions. She's a clinical adjunct assistant professor at the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine, where she has been a guest lecturer since 2007. She's a founding member of the ALF Educational Institute and is an internationally recognized expert in the application of osteopathy and functional dentistry with a focus on the use of advanced lightwear functional devices and TMD. She is the author of The ALF Approach, Changing the Face of Orthodontics. You can find out more about Dr. Terzo at www.drtashaterzo.com. And now here's my interview with Dr. Terzo. All right. Thank you, Dr. Terzo, and welcome to our podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to be able to share. Yeah, absolutely. So before we begin, just to kind of set the stage for everybody, what exactly is a DO and what is the practice of osteopathy? It's a great question. And um, I can start by talking about what is an osteopathic physician in America, because it's different in America than in the rest of the world, actually. Osteopathy. Yes, yes. So we have different licensing uh, capacities, basically, um, or regulations in America than we do in the rest of the world. So in the United States, there's two different ways to become a medical physician. There's two different um, organizations that... um, regulate a medical license in United States. One is the AMA, American Medical Association. And um, the other one is the AOA, American Osteopathic Association. And depending upon, and each one of those have different schools. So you have the allopathic, which is an MD medical school, which is four years. And you have the osteopathic medical school, which is also four years. The, um, so you, when you apply to medical school, you choose to apply to, you know, you can choose to apply to both and many do both. I was captivated by the osteopathic philosophy. And I was very clear, I wanted to be an osteopath, and I chose not to apply to any MD schools. Um, The osteopathic um, philosophy, there's a philosophy behind how we practice medicine. Um, My beloved husband's an MD, and we have a conversation often about this, there is no philosophy in allopathic medicine, it's basically uh, kill all germs at all costs and avoid death. That's basically what they're, you know, that's basically what underneath what they're trying to do is that in the osteopathic philosophy, we have some basic, basic principles. And that is that the body has an inherent capacity to heal itself. So we may put Mm -hmm. a bandaid on, but we're not healing the patient. We're creating an environment for the patient to heal itself. So it's really coming from a different perspective. So I do a lot of functional medicine also, and I come from the osteopathic functional medicine perspective, which is how do I help this person help themselves? Where are the obstacles of health? What is limiting this person from optimizing their own health? Another basic principle is that the body is a functional unit. So the body is one unit from the top of our heads to bottom of our toes. There is no 
division and there is no effect in one part of the body that doesn't have an effect in another part of the body. So if we have, and this really comes into play when we're talking about orthodontics, if we put braces mm-hmm. on teeth and we move teeth, the whole head mm-hmm. shifts, the base of the cranium shifts, the cervical shift, right. the posture shifts, everything shifts to accommodate those teeth coming together. And that's why it's crucially important to be able to have collaboration and to be able to work together and to make sure that when those pearly whites are coming back together, everything else is in alignment or else what do we do? We lock in a strain pattern. So right. coming back to the osteopathic principles, the body's a functional unit from the head to toe and structure and function are reciprocally interrelated, which means that a bridge is created in a certain structure to have a certain function, right? Just like our human mm-hmm. body has a structure that has a function to it. So our structures function. That's really important. So we're coming from okay. a more mechanical perspective of looking at the human body, meaning that if we have ribs that are not moving well and are restricted, mm-hmm. if we get a pneumonia, most likely the pneumonia is going to go to the side where the ribs aren't moving really well. Oh, got it. So it's looking at the human body is not only a functional unit from head to toe, but that everything in the body has motion and motion is health. Mm-hmm. And this expansion contraction that happens of the breath, let's say, in the body, mm-hmm. that is also the driving force for uh, arterial blood supply going to a cell and venous and lymphatic return going away. So I'm giving you kind of bullet points and trying to build a big picture of what the philosophy is of osteopathy, because that is a basic difference. Mm-hmm. The education is basically exactly the same as an MD, except for we have about 100 to 500 hours, depending upon what school you go to, what osteopathic school you go to, where we learn this philosophy. And we also learn how to diagnose neuromuscular skeletal issues. So we come out. This is in addition. That 500 is in addition. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we have more class hours per se. And what happens with the MDs is they get out earlier and go to clinics and start doing more of their clinical rotations or clinical education earlier, a little earlier. Each school is very different. Um, So we know how to work up back pain. When we graduate with our four years, we know how to work up a back pain or a headache or an ankle strain. And we learn nine different ways of treating neuromusculoskeletal issues. But it's just like taking a basic course in cardiology. It's not enough to go into practice, um, but mm-hmm. it's at least a something. And then once we finish our four years, then we intermesh together in our residency program. So like I did um, uh, one year of a family practice residency with UCSF, which were almost all MDs. There was like one other GO, um, you know, in all residency programs, you'll find DOs and MDs um, Mm -hmm. in the same residency program. And I would say then you get licensed by your state and our license is exactly the same. So if I had specialized in surgery, I would be doing surgery Mm -hmm. as a DO, but I didn't, I chose to, and then it gets complicated. I'm so sorry about this, but it gets complicated. Then um, 95% of my colleagues that are DOs don't practice the way I practice. So I practice as a traditional osteopath. In other words, I use my hands with every single patient to help them in terms of removing obstacles of health and helping their health optimize, basically. And I also do, you know, 
I also did a four-year training and taught in the world of homeopathy. I do PRP and prolotherapy injections. So I do cellular regeneration. I do a lot of the injections in the jaw joints because I work a lot with TMD. Um, I see a lot of babies. Um, I see children. So it's kind of like a family practice, old-fashioned mm -hmm. in a way, because uh, okay. I'm using... Primarily, I start with my hands to see what are restrictions in the body and um, what we can do to remove those. And in the rest of the world, the osteopaths are not medical physicians. So in Canada and oh. Australia, New Zealand, France, they're more like chiropractors. So they learn how to do, they learn osteopathy. They learn the osteopathic portion and how to do the hands-on. And they learn how to use the nine different modalities that are taught, but they're not medical physicians. So they can't do injections or they can't prescribe medication. Um, they can't do, you know, um, they can't do anything that's in the world of a physician's world. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So when you say your hands on, it's mm -hmm. and you 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 touched on a little bit about modality. It's more how the body. You know, if I were to come in and let's say I have, you know, I I know I'm having my annual sinus infection. Okay. So you know, let's just start with something like that. When your hands okay. on, how do you how do you move and and see? You know, you're looking not just to treat. Hi, I have a sinus infection. You're looking deeper, is my understanding. For sure. So inherent within principles of osteopathy is digging for etiology. And that's okay. one thing that's very, that I think from my perspective is quite unique to osteopathy. So I'm trying to, mm -hmm. if you came in to see me with sinus infection, which definitely is something right up my alley, I feel very comfortable with. I okay. help many, many people with chronic allergies and get them off the antibiotics. I'm going to be thinking, what's going on? Where's their lack of motion? Why is there lack of motion in the mid face? what's going mm. on where we're not getting mid face movement and what's not happening that needs to drain your sinuses. So draining sinuses, draining the middle oh. ears is an inherent capacity within a human body. And a lot of it mm -hmm. has to do with the tongue um, and getting the tongue up and back and getting the pressure change that happens through the mid face when we have a functional swallow and a tongue resting position and a good dental occlusion. So if that, that's one of the things I'm going to look at. So I'm going to okay. take a good history. I usually spend, I spend two hours with the patient initially. Um, and that's where I'm going through absolutely everything from your birth history to your developmental history, to your nursing sucking swallow history, to your trauma history. What sort of head injuries did you have? Did you have any, you know, babies fall all the time off beds, mm -hmm. countertops, I go through that. Um, then I look at your orthodontic history, you know, what else happened? You know, are your teeth actually in a physiological position or a non-physiological position? Cause they were forced there and the rest of your body wasn't able to, and your rest of your body is now accommodating for this new dental occlusion that's man-made that's based on classes like class one, two, and three, which are lining up basically the pre the, the first molar, but that's mm -hmm. not a functional dental occlusion. A functional dental occlusion is when that dental occlusion is biocompatible with the rest of the body. Gotcha. Then I'm also gotcha. going to be looking at your diet and your gut. So if I notice that I'm spending an hour and a half with a patient and they've got a great lip seal and they're breathing through their nose, now I'm like, hmm, why is it congested? Maybe it's from the gut and maybe this person has a food allergy. So I do workup of the gut and I look at maybe it's dairy, which a lot of times it is, or maybe it's mm -hmm. wheat. 
And so then I'll, I'll see like, how open is this person to changing their diet? That's very challenging for some people. So it's a very individuated approach. Um, You know, the non-individuated approach is give you antibiotics and just keep giving you antibiotics and like, well, this is every year, come back again. This is your quote unquote genetics. This is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to keep giving you antibiotics. And this is like a, you know, five minute appointment. No, no, thank you. Um, Not going to do that. We want, I want to find out why this person is having this chronic recurrent sinus infection. Something's not right. Okay. All right. And you touched on this briefly. Um, which they can't see. I was smiling when you did it. Yeah. But it, when you were talking about the occlusions and the man-made occlusions, and yeah. when I heard you speak at AAPMD, which I will put the link to that lecture in our show notes, one of the things you talked about was the impact of retractive orthodontics. Yes. And in kind of the approach specifically around airways. Um, yes. That's one thing here at Children's Airway First that we... I have seen and we're seeing over and over with people with, that we speak with, with other medical professionals. How, how do you approach, well, just, there's really no good way to ask that. I mean, how do you yeah. approach that? You have a, a, yeah, you have a patient that's coming in that, you know, they're having issues and here they are, they're getting ready to either have orthodontic work done, you know, in their teen years, or now you're in your thirties or forties and you had that work done. And now you're presenting with chronic allergies sleep apnea, things of that nature? Yeah. Well, it begins with early intervention. So I'm all hyped up about children. Um, I have children myself, actually, they're now young adults, or they're trying to be young adults, we'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, I'm very passionate about children. And if you know, if if I, I could probably retire now and feel fulfilled, because I know I've helped so many children. It's about, and now it's all about education. It's educating parents, educating um, mm-hmm. my colleagues, educating the dental world, the malfunctional world about what are the signs that we see right when a ba- baby's born that is going to tell us that this one is going to have an airway issue. So the airway issue typically comes before the teeth comes in. So the teeth mm-hmm. come in, the teeth are, are coming in after the second swallow are already in place. And the second swallow have more to do with increasing oral volume than our teeth do. Our teeth are simply coming together so we can now have a couple of things. We can chew um, Mm -hmm. and the chewing and the function of chewing and how we're chewing very much dictates the growth of the mandible. So this is epigenetics. This is how we use our function, how the functions in our face work is what develops a face. Got so it. learning so, how, yes, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So, th- so the, the airway issue most of the time is there at birth or is it just. It, the signs of dysfunction that lead to airway issues. Dysfunction. Yes. Okay. Can, can be identified right at birth. And it really has to do with how they nurse the second swallow of nursing. And it has to do okay. with, can they nurse on both sides? Can they actually have the range of motion to turn their neck? If they don't, that's the subtle torticollis. So the birth experience is one of our biggest formative experiences that we have in our life that shape and form our head and our face because our head is what's opening up the cervix. So the whole entire, how the baby's positioned, 
the kind of forces that are happening, the intervention that's happening from below up, let's say, have a huge effect on the functioning of our face and our head Uh and our neck. So that's one thing that's being completely missed is taking a really good birth history. The other thing is taking a really good trauma history. So there's portions of the cranium that don't ossify until we're eight to nine years old. So any falls on the back of the head can twist and compress different cranial bones, impinging Mm -hmm. on certain cranial nerves, creating entrapment. And this makes these nerves not function as well. And these nerves are cranial nerves 9, 10, 11, and 12. So four of these very important nerves that they all go to the head, face, mouth can be pinched and compromised with facial strains. So the hands-on, if, if in my ideal utopia, every <laughs> single newborn would have an osteopathic treatment from someone who specializes in cranial osteopathy. Everything. And if I can get them early enough, because I will, I will go to the delivery room with my mamas that I treat when they're pregnant. I was about to say at birth. The baby, at birth, at birth, but you know, bring them to me a week later. I'm still happy. But those are ones, if I follow them all the way through, they don't need orthodontia because wow. what we're doing is integrating the functions. So it's the functions okay. that get, get, that go in the wrong direction that create a structure mm-hmm that then is holding a maladaptive airway. So airway is simply a structure. It's, it's, I usually have a toilet paper hole roll with me, but um, it's a toilet paper roll. If you imagine a hole, okay. a toilet paper roll, right? right? And you put right. that in the back of your tongue, that's your airway. Mm-hmm. And airway is collapsible soft tissue all the way around. So it's the function mm-hmm. of those nerves to give the soft tissue tone to be able to increase the size of our airway. So it's not about pulling the face forward. It's not about rapid palate expanders, which only do two-dimensional, not three-dimensional expansion. Anyhow, it's about Mm -hmm. looking in the beginning at the functioning of these nerves to make sure that they're intact. And the the action that expresses the intactness of these four cranial nerves is nursing. So if we're having to hold our baby like you know, over our shoulders, or can only nurse in bed on the right side, but not the left side, can only nurse laying down. These are all signs of compensations for a lack of tone and integration of these nerves and or a tongue tie. But not all tongue tie, okay. not all nursing dysfunctions or nursing issues are tongue ties by any means. Right. A right. lot of times it's low tone to the hypoglossal nerve, which is a nerve that innervates the tongue. So can this be seen if you're not breastfeeding? Can you still spot it if the child is not breastfeeding? Yes, you can assess the suck. So even if you're a little little pinky in their mouth, I mean, Mm -hmm. if moms are doing it's hard unless you've had other children to compare it to. Okay. You have to have a right. right, right. What's a good suck swallow. But if they have a low suck swallow and a low tone, then this is something that's worth looking at to see if it is a compression at the base of the cranium, which can quite easily be resolved. But if it's not right. resolved, and the ongoing consequence leads to sleep apnea. Got without it. a question. Amazing. Okay. Wow. So another thing that, that I heard you talk about was about the food we eat. Yes. And I'm, I'm now, you know, when I heard you do it, I'm, I have to be honest. I started retracing my steps. You know, what did I feed my children growing up? If I set them up to win, oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, but you, you had mentioned that 
it actually impacts facial development and oral A hundred percent. Yes. How so? Yes. So first of all, us moms, it's always our fault. We're always like, you know, we've got this radar looking for where did we go wrong? The, the, right. the, guilt, the guilt one. Of it's just like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, God bless us all. Anyhow. Yeah. Um, yes. So what we eat forms our face. And the reason why is because not, it's not only nutrition in terms of the mm-hmm. nutrient dense food that we need to build healthy bones and healthy muscles, but it is um, what we chew is has an influence on how we chew. So if we're feeding our babies, all these soft foods, you know, the ones that are in the, the, the packages where you just like you're driving and you've got the kids screaming yep. in the back and you just hand them the package and they squeeze mm-hmm. it. The right? little so applesauce, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So those are all soft foods. So part of what's happened, if we look at ev- of evolution of, or the change of human faces over time is, is that we have become more maxillary mandibular retrusive, which means that we're becoming mm-hmm. more like bulldogs. We're getting a flatter face. And right. the reason for that is because of, we're not chewing on bones anymore. You know, we used to chew on bones for like six hours a day or something like that. Like there was a lot of chewing. We'd, we'd have meat that we'd have to work. Uh, nuts, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. We didn't have smoothies. We didn't have juicing. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have applesauce. So it's all these soft uh, foods that are, are are creating the experience where we're not using our jaw as much. And so there's many, many studies um, done on mice rats. One of them, what they did was they took out the occlusion on one side. Uh, they took out how the bicuspid and the first molar contact on one side of the mouse or mice or rat, whatever, little poor rodents. And then they looked at mandibular development. And what they saw was that they had mandibular growth on the side where there was an occlusion, but on the side, there wasn't an occlusion. The mandible didn't grow. Mm. So what it shows us is that with the amount of contact that happens, it's the contact um, and the compression that happens and stimulates bone growth. It stimulates the mandible to grow. So when I see the kids that are retrogonathic, right? First of all, if I see a baby that's retrogonathic, I know right away that mom has an airway issue. So what happened was mom Wait, had mom a, has an airway issue. Mom, that's one of the main reasons why we're seeing all these babies with retrogonathia, which means that the mandible's back. So what happened? Wow. I'll just jump onto that because okay. that's kind of cool and interesting. Yeah. What happens is, yeah. is that Mom has an airway issue and therefore the womb is a suboptimal oxygenated environment. And our environment is what dictates our growth patterns, right? Just like I'm talking about the epigenetics of what we eat creates a mandible. The same thing, the epigenetics happens in utero. So if mom has four bicuspid extraction, they've had braces, everything is pulled back, right? The tongue doesn't have room, so the tongue is going to go back because the poor little tongue doesn't know where else to go. We have suboptimal oxygenation happening as we're developing our babies. And so the face of the baby is an expression of the environment it's been in. Wow. Wow. That, that, that's a pretty big one for me. I just have to kind of let that one sit for a moment. Yes. Yes, I understand wow. that. You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. Tasha Turzo. 
You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to my interview with Dr. Tasha Terzo. from a very it's coming from a whole perspective and it's coming from a functional perspective right so so much of our our perspectives within mm-hmm. dentistry is all structural and we think of dentists as fixing cavities and making teeth align so right. what what this is what this perspective is is now we're going to look at well what brings teeth into their position in the first place and it's not genetics. That is for sure. It is not genetics. It's not like when we have our kid that has not room for their teeth that we need to pull the teeth out because just so sorry, genetically, you know, your mom and your dad or, you know, the, you know, whatever, whoever made you weren't compatible to create an air, uh, 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 oral volume that's conducive to life. So that is not true. What happens is, is it's the initial functions that don't go optimally that create a suboptimal structure. So our faces and the structure of our face tell a picture of how we've functioned with our nasal breathing, our lip seal, our tongue up posturing and our chewing. Those are the main components that grow a face. So this is coming from the point of view of early intervention is intervention on looking at the functions and trying to get those online so that we can develop a face that is perfect for us. It's a perfect expression of our optimal health. And how early we can start is birth. How late can we make an impact with this approach? Well, actually, are we, talking? we can do now pre-birth because now we can look at the moms and I can be like, you know what? How about if we do something to optimize your oxygen before you get pregnant? Right? Wow. Right. I mean, prenatals are nothing. Right. Prenatals are nothing compared to like optimizing oxygenation. I mean, as human beings, we grow to oxygen just like a plant grows to sunshine. So we're Mm going to contort and and, and even in our structure as we're growing, you know, we're going to tongue thrust or we're going to lateral thrust with our tongue or we're going to open mouth breathe. Um, We're going to do whatever we can to optimize that function in our body. And it's never too late to heal. If we're not dead, we're still transforming. That's my opinion. So that's, you know. I love that. Yeah. I, I love that. Now this approach you're talking about, this is the ALF approach, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, the ALF approach includes um, um, working collaboratively with an osteopathic physician, someone doing hands-on, a myofunctional therapist, and a dentist who's trained in how to adjust the alpha appliance, how to make the alpha appliance and how to adjust it. So it's very much of a collaborative approach, which I love because I think Mm -hmm. that, not I think, my experience is, is that we can serve our patients that much better when we work together. 
I understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're at Children's Airway First rallying for is this collaboration. I mean, we are much stronger together and that includes everything from myofunctional therapy, you know, DOs, MDs, dentists, everybody coming together. So with, you know, looking at that, that collaborative approach, which would be, and at that point, treating the patient, the entire patient, you know, what stands in the way of obtaining the information that is needed to treat the whole patient instead of this kind of siloed reactive approach, which is where at least American medicine is right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a paradigm shift. It's really a paradigm shift. You know, um, if the MD is, is fulcrumed within the germ theory and the, you know, we're going to do medications, we're not going to dig for answers. We're not going to question. We're not going to be curious and I mean, DOs can absolutely be like this too. I, I in no way mean sure. to uh, put it all on MDs in any way. Again, my beloved husband's an MD. So it's not about right. that. It's, it's about um, that kind of approach, right? So curiosity, mm-hmm. I think that actually, curi- I think there's a couple of things. One is curiosity. I think most okay. health professions are not moving with curiosity. And to be curious, one has to take their ego and throw it out the window. Because you have to be, you can't be ego forward. And I call it ego forward. And that's just really not pleasant to work with, especially in a collaborative way. So everyone has to take their ego and kind of put it aside, you know, eat some humble pie, recognize that, gosh, maybe I'm missing something. So that takes curiosity. Curiosity means an open mind. You know, Einstein was Mm -hmm. very, very curious. He was a curious human being. Right, open-minded. Buckminster Fuller was open-minded. You know, that's where we can then integrate a new paradigm is when we are open-minded, curious, questioning. Um, And in order to do that, one has to have open eyes to look and see the problem in the first place. You know, there's a lot of people that are just missing that there's an epidemic of airway issues now, right? And then there's Mm -hmm. a question of what to do about the airway issue. Um, You know, if you have the concept that the body is hard and rigid, because all of our anatomy that we're taught comes from dead people and they're hard and rigid and they don't move, but that's actually not the living, real experience of a human body. You can look at it um, f- from what, what a body looks like in surgery. I, you know, I was fascinated with the human body and I drove from LA to San Diego every day for a month to do autopsies all day long. And a lot of those autopsies were on children. And I was able to look at the inside of the calvarium, um, look at the dura membranes and how they how they actually feel and look at the brain and look at the connection between the head and the cervicals. That was curious. And what I saw was, I mean, the human body that is basically alive or recently dead Mm -hmm. is very different than the anatomical perspective that we're having that the body's hard and rigid. So if you have that perspective that the body is hard and rigid and is compartmentalized, then you can put Mm -hmm. in something that's hard and rigid and fixed in the upper palate and push the face forward. But if you come from the perspective that the body is a whole functioning unit, that everything, anything that happens to the head is going to have consequences all the way down the body, all the way down, mm-hmm. all the way down, then if you put something hard, fixed and rigid in the body, it's actually not biocompatible. It's not biologically compatible with life because 
living tissue isn't hard, fixed and rigid. It's more of a biotensegrity. So this is where Buckminster Fuller gave us this phenomenal principle of tensegrity. The body has this capacity to have a bio biotensegrity, which means that all the pieces have to be moving and the movement of each of the piece creates the stability in the body. So stability is created by the capacity for all the move parts to move. So if you put something hard, fixed and rigid, whether it's, you know, a hard plate in the ankle or, you know, in the hip, the rest of the body is going to have to compensate, which is fine. Sometimes that's what we have to do. We need hip replacements sometimes, but to know that there's compensations for it and to then to be able to assess what are the compensations and to treat the compensations to optimize health. Makes sense. Now, on, on the curiosity that you mentioned, which uh, I have to say personally, I, I do agree with. I, does that also require, though, the curiosity aspect of it? More time. You, know, you can't be this curious in five minutes seeing a patient. And you mentioned earlier, you spend two hours with patients. Yeah, I spent two hours with the initial consult with the patient. With the initial. Mm -hmm. And my follow-ups are half an hour, which is still much longer than physicians are charging, basically. So it does put me outside the box. And one of the consequences of that is that I don't bill insurance directly. So it's all fee-for-service. And that has a consequence. And I have to deal with that consequence in different ways that I have to deal with it. So that was something I had to come to peace with when I was 26 years old and starting my practice that I knew that how the gift that I had to provide wasn't going to be in the box and there was going to be a consequence to that. Um, one of the ways I feel like I can make up for it is teaching, um, spreading the word and talking about what other options are. Um, and yes, you have to also like, for example, we just had an orthodontist go through one of the courses that I teach at and she sees 90 patients a day and she couldn't fit the ALF approach into her practice at 90 patients a day, because it takes more time. The ALF, the ALF right. which is a light wire that goes behind the upper and lower teeth, is every month you go in, you see the ALF dentist, they take it out and they have to problem solve exactly where to activate, where to uh, activate the wire for that individual. So there's no cookie cutter. And so when you take cookie cutter, you know, all the other ways, the palate expanders, bioblock, you know, orthotropics, DNA, homeoblock, all these things are turn screws. It doesn't take much intelligence to turn a screw, right? Mm -hmm. Doing the ALF approach takes time and it takes education. So this is another, another issue that's happening is dentists are advertising, saying that they do the ALF and it's really a catch and a bait and switch. I think it's called bait and switch which they bait want people to, bait and switch. They want people to come in because they want people, they want more business, but they right. really don't know how to do the ALF. They haven't taken a course on how to do the ALF. They just, and then they say, oh, the ALF won't help with that, but the bioblock will, or orthotropics will, or this will help, or the rapid palate expander would be a better way for you. So one of the main questions from talking to parents is that if you go see someone who's advertising that they're doing the ALF is to ask them what courses they've taken. And right now, you know, the course that I can recommend wholeheartedly is the uh, course with Dr. Dr. Bronson called the AEI, ALF Educational Institute. And that's something that I um, and teach with. So I help teach those courses to dentists. Um, so 
maybe that's a rate limiting step is for dentists to realize that if they're wanting to do this approach, they need to invest time and resources to get trained and do it the right way. And yep, do it the right absolutely. way. Yeah, absolutely. I basically, basically comes down absolutely. to money, money and ego, I would say, right. It's right. being able to be like, well, I may not make as much money with this, but I'm at least doing no harm and I'm helping people. And mm-hmm. the ego part, you have to throw it away if you want to be curious. Right. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So thinking about medical professionals, um, kind of shifting gears a little bit instead of parents from this perspective, what kind of questions should they be asking? Or are there questions they could ask to help identify some of these suboptimal airways in children earlier? It's a really good question. Uh, the question that I would, that, that we have to start with is who are they talking to? Are they talking to the dentist or they're talking to the pediatrician? Um, they're talking to the osteopath or the myofunctional therapist or the uh, lactation consultant, you know? So the answer, and then it was going to depend on if any of them have any education in this world of of growth and development of faith is basically facial growth and development of children. Facial growth. Right. It's, It's airway is a consequence of the functioning of the face. So once again, we want to dig underneath, you know, again, imagine the toilet paper roll. It is literally a collapsible uh, space behind the tongue. So we have to think of everything that affects that area of the body. And in, in my, I have an on-demand course. It's open for parents, certainly parents. It's an on-demand course. It's 11 hours of me talking. Um, and I go, one of the lectures is called, airway and beyond. And what I do is okay. I take the airway structure of the airway and expand it into the function of the human body, which is really comes down to breath and breathing. So breathing is a function that and second swallow and chewing that creates an airway. So we want to again, look at what are the functions, but to circle back around with your question, unfortunately it's, it's, it's not a good, I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, I don't, when you're at, I think it's better for parents to be educated. That's what I really encourage. There's, there's, you know, these podcasts, you can take my online class, um, uh, read the book, read my book. All you have to do is read the book. And then the parents are going to be educated on what to look for in their children. And that way we're directly advocating for our kids. Got it. Got it. And by the way, I will put a link to both your book and the course, the on-demand course in our show notes for parents. So just, you know, a couple more questions. When we're looking at this multidisciplinary approach to medicine, um, specifically around pediatrics, okay. what does that look like to you? What, what, what is your kind of know, utopia? What, what yeah. is the right way to do it? What would be the end all be all for you? What, so the form of it is <laughs> what I actually have in my office, which, um, you know, pre-COVID, I had a myofunctional therapist come into my office every two weeks. Now she does everything on Zoom, um, but we're very collaborative in good communication. Um, I have an ALF pediatric dentist in my office, mm-hmm. and I have mm-hmm. an osteopathic uh, colleague in my office because I'm quite full. So I get to refer to someone who's been educated in all of this. Um, that's kind of my utopia. I'm quite happy um, in that. And and and. That can be that can be created in other places in the world. Also, it's the 
So it's the connection with the osteopath uh, who's trained in this. So and it's very important for me to be clear. Mo many of my colleagues do not know about this. They don't understand the connection between the dental occlusion and the cranium. They don't understand, mm -hmm. um, even, they don't even know how to assess tongue function. So that's what I'm very much passionately trying to do. I'm teaching so much and I'm trying to get my colleagues to join in this, to really be able to, to stay on the cutting edge and to be able to give this service. Um, it's not circling back around to what does it look like? It's not essential. Like it doesn't have to be that the ALF dentist is in the same office as the cranial osteopath or the malfunctional therapist. What's most important is that we have good communication and collaboration skills, you know, right. which is sometimes so personality and working together. Mm -hmm. So they can be personality right. limited. You know, if it's just someone on the team that you, you, for whatever reason, you move in life differently than they move in life and you don't feel like you can work together, even though you're both competent in what you do, it's going to be more challenging. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. What would you recommend to a parent that has a child that has a sleep issue or is sure that their child has some kind of airway issue, whether or not they're at the stage of, okay, now it's braces time. How would you guide these parents? What would your, your recommendation be? Um, I wish I had a quick and simple one for that one, but it would depend upon the age of the child. Do they have teeth or not? Um, how okay. old are they? Um, that gives mm -hmm. me, if, if, do we have an option for an alpha or not? You know, am I dealing with, uh, you know, a one-year-old or a six-month-old? So then I'm going to really look at their history, their birth history. I'm going to get my hands on them and I'm going to see, you know, how are the structures moving? How's the base of the cranium moving? Is there a good motion? I'm going to assess their interoral suck and swallow and look at that, look at their friend, you know, if they have a friend limb or something like that, and then start working with, with they, if they're going to need either like, um, uh, see someone to release a tongue. If that's really the issue, we, I work a lot with lasers. I love photobiomodulation. I think it's the absolutely cutting really? edge of medicine. I have a laser in, um, my office, um, where we use it underneath the tongue and, um, it can elongate the fibers. Uh, but so if some baby is kind of like maybe tongue tied, maybe not tongue tied, we treat them osteopathically. And then we use the laser to, not just elongate the fibers underneath the tongue, but also to stimulate the neural integration of a second swallow. So we do points on the face. It's almost like it could be, you could think of it as neural reflexive integration, but with laser um, okay. and it's phenomenal. So those are some of the, the uh, what I look at in treating uh, human beings that don't have teeth. Um, it's interesting. I just this morning, I got an email from a family in Kauai that's reaching out that exactly has this. They have a five-year-old. They haven't slept in three years. He has an airway issue. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what do we do? So the first thing I have to do is I've got to get online and assess the situation and like, try to figure out what's going on with this specific human being. So finding someone who can help with finding out exactly what the problem is. Where's the obstacle? You know, that's what we're trying to find. Where's the okay. obstacle? Um, and then I you know, try to connect them with an ALF. This one will go probably to an ALF dentist because it's, he's five. And if he's compliant enough, we can do, you know, two, three-year-olds. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So um, typically at the end of a podcast, I like to provide our guests an opportunity 
just to speak to parents and leave them with whatever you think is appropriate. So I'd like to offer you that time. Oh gosh, that makes me almost want to cry. Oh, the first thing that comes up is that I'm just so sorry. You know, it's just so challenging and so difficult to be a parent these days. You know, 26 years ago when I was first in practice, the kids, you know, it would be rare for me to see a kid with eczema and allergies and asthma and a breathing disorder. You know, we didn't see that. It's mm-hmm. only 20. I've only been in practice 26 years. And the, and now every single one of my kids, I would say, has a gut issue to some extent. They all have inflammation and gut issues. So I'm all my kiddos I'm treating for gut issues. So I think I just have to say, hang in there. Whenever there's a problem, there's a solution. You know, for glycophosphate, crazy stuff that's happening. It's like there's a solution to that. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. we just have to keep our eyes open and be curious and our ears open and be determined to figure out how to give our children the best care possible and to stay fulcrumed and function. Right. Don't it's 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 easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to feel like. Sure. Yeah, just give me the, um, the magic pill. Give me the magic thing and make my kid either sleep or make this go away. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that happens, but don't compromise. Don't compromise for the, a quick fix necessarily that doesn't, isn't long-term health giving, I would say. Okay. And I would put in that category things that are, um, hard and fixed and in the mouth. Got it. Got it. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for coming on here and sharing everything. Um, it, it was absolutely educational and very enlightening. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity and, um, you know, may all children be able to find their health. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Tasha Terzo for sharing her medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected to the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breeding, everyone.